Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have a segment about the death penalty with someone from a conservative group trying to help abolish it in Ohio. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has lots of information about the pandemic, as well as segments about the opioid crisis. An undocumented immigrant in Columbus who's finally back at her home after spending more than three years in a church seeking sanctuary from deportation. And a look at the history of the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington. It started 50 years ago and is now being led by Columbus Congresswoman Joyce Beatty. And in about 45 minutes, I'll wrap up the hour with David Monder, who is with Prevent Blindness Ohio. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me is Hannah Cox, who is the Senior National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the organization. Yeah, Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty got started uh, over a decade ago now in Montana with a group of grassroots conservatives working around the legislature there, and as you often see happen in state legislatures, they were considering a bill that would shorten the appellate process for death penalty cases, and this group became very concerned about that and thought, you know, the death penalty doesn't align with conservative values. It isn't a limited government policy. It doesn't protect the sanctity of human life. It certainly has um, many individual liberty issues and also, you know, fiscal conservatism aspects. So they started organizing and calling themselves conservatives concerned about the death penalty, and what they found were, were a lot of Republicans kind of started coming out of the wood work and had been really struggling with this issue and just didn't know there were others who had similar thoughts or, or instincts. And so it, it took off quite rapidly. We went national in 2013, launching at CPAC officially. And we've been growing pretty quickly ever since then. We're now, uh, we have 15 state chapters across the country. We've been very involved three successful campaigns to repeal the death penalty. We've seen the number of Republicans sponsoring bills and voting to repeal the death penalty really explode. Um, in the past, you know, two or three years, we've had over 60 Republican lawmakers sponsoring bills to repeal, hundreds of others voting in favor of it. We see legislation proposed in 10 or 11 states each year with Republican-sponsored uh, pieces of bills. And so it, it's really encouraging to see just how rapidly it's taken off. And, and we continue to advocate and try to educate uh, others on our, on our side of the aisle about the reasons the system is flawed and why it's not very smart public policy. Traditionally, has the issue of the death penalty been a political issue? Has one party more than another favored it or not favored it? Yeah, that definitely used to be true. And we really see that the death penalty sort of hit its height of popularity in the country towards the late 1990s, early 2000s. And at that time, um, you saw most people did support it, but especially you saw that Republicans supported it more so than Democrats. Um, and then that started to change, especially under George W. Bush's presidency. We saw the left become a bit more concerned uh, at that time, at least, with civil liberties and um, and with war and some of those things. And so they, they started championing and getting rid of it, although you'd always have some people on the left to champion that. Um, but really, you know, when we started studying this in 2000, it was very rare to see a Republican come out against the death penalty, much less a Republican sponsor legislation to get rid of it. It just wasn't done. Uh, I remember when I first started kind of changing my mind on it a number of years ago, I remember thinking, like, is this okay as a Republican? Am I allowed to think this? <laughs> kind of a groupthink um, way of, of going about which policies we take on and things like that. So I, I do think you've seen a massive shift in, per in perception on this issue. We now see over half the country thinks that the, the death penalty is unfair, and we see rapidly decreasing support for it on both sides of the aisle, but certainly among Republicans, um, it, it's ticked down quite a bit in the past few decades. 
and it seems to be moving in that direction in Ohio as well. Absolutely. You know, Ohio is such an exciting state because I have to be very honest. When I first took over this organization about three years ago, Ohio was not off my radar at all as far as being a state that might repeal in the near future. And the reasons for that were, were that Ohio has one of the largest death rows in the country. I think it's the third largest. Um, traditionally, we've seen states that have repealed the death penalty have had smaller death row populations. And traditionally, we've seen states that have repealed the death penalty have been states that haven't used the death penalty in recent years, which is the majority of states. We're down to only 25 states that have operating systems at all. Um, and of those 25, over a third of them haven't carried out a, an execution in a decade or more. Um, Ohio kind of falls outside of that line, right? They've had executions within the past even five years, um, and it's a very red state, and it does have a large death row. So it wasn't a state that we necessarily thought was revving up to get rid of it. But what we found was when we started coming into the state, we found rapid support for getting rid of the death penalty among conservatives. It really sort of took my breath away just how many people um, were really concerned with this. We saw that we had really great support in the legislature among Republicans. We saw that we had tremendous support among Republican grass-top leadership in the state, you know, former governors, former attorneys general, Congress people. Um, and so that was very exciting, and we continued having conversations and meeting with grassroots conservatives, and, and we've just found that there's tremendous interest in getting rid of this. And, and I think that that's a testament to what's happened nationally as well. I think as we've seen more and more states getting rid of it, as we've continued to talk about this at the national level, people are, and as we move into the age of information, too, you know, that can't be discredited, people are getting to see behind the curtain of the justice system in a way they never did before unless they were personally impacted. And they're recognizing just how many problems we have with wrongful convictions, how the system works to uphold itself instead of seeking truth. We see a lot of bias and arbitrariness. Um, we certainly are learning a lot more about the cost and the effectiveness of that money that's being spent on actually uh, increasing public safety. And, and what people are finding is that the death penalty fails across all of these metrics. You know, it really isn't justifiable. It just doesn't make sense. And so there's a myriad of reasons for people to oppose it on the right. Um, but I think as more and more people have become aware of those, that's why we see such a tidal wave in states like Ohio where there's a real eagerness to get rid of it. Talking with Hannah Cox, who's the senior national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Ohio has 139 uh, inmates on death row. For a long time, there were more than 200. And the reason why it's much lower is because these folks were on death row. And, and we did at one point a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, we were second behind Texas in executions. That's right. Yep. Ohio was a very high usage state for many, many years. Um, and we've seen that with the new administration that has quickly changed. Um, and I think that, again, that has changed for a lot of reasons. Again, I just think public support is shifting and leaders recognize it. I think there's been real issues with obtaining constitutional ways to carry out the execution. Um, but I think more, more so than anything else, it's just this recognition that it takes a whole lot of money it takes a whole lot of effort to carry out executions, and it's not really benefiting anyone. We see tons of murder victims, family members come out and speak against the system and talk about the harmful effects that it has had on their lives. We see many people who've worked in corrections or around law enforcement, around the judicial system coming out and speaking about its flaws and the unfairness of it. Um, and we really see a need um, and a recognition of, you know, of what actually prevents violence. We're learning a lot more about the science of violence and, and what we can do to adequately treat it and address it and limit it. Um, and the death penalty is, is not any way to do that. In fact, it wastes really precious resources that could be spent on things that do actually work or on solving more crimes in the first place. So it's, it's an issue of, you know, not always an ethical issue for many people. It's often an issue of practicality. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't work and it's too expensive. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And getting into some of the additional arguments, some would say, you know, if somebody is locked in a cage, that they can't get out of, then why not just leave them in the cage? And also because 
going through the whole ex- execution process victimizes the family of the person being executed, and, and they are, they've done nothing wrong. But it also goes deeper, and we can look at Hamilton County where Cincinnati is for that, right? That's exactly right, um, and I think that you named many of the, the issues that people are raising when we have these discussions, um, and I think when you point out you know, certain counties in Ohio, we, we see that not only in Ohio but across the country, that there's only a very small number of counties that even pursue death penalty cases in the first place. The vast majority of them have recognized that this is too expensive and that, again, it's an opportunity cost that means they are less likely to be able to solve more crimes or to actually achieve justice for all. Um, so most counties turn away. From it. It's traditionally only a few, um, small number, about 2% of counties in the country that still pursue death penalty cases. They tend to be wealthier counties, larger counties. Um, and to date, since reinstatement of the death penalty in, in the 1970s, we've seen that every execution carried out in this country has come from less than 16% of the nation's counties. So it really is arbitrary. A lot of people think that who gets the death penalty has to do with, you know, the heinousness of the crime or the, quote, quote, worst of the worst, which is a very subjective qualification in the first place. But even if we could agree on what that qualification would look like, it's certainly by no means the way that we are deciding who gets the death penalty. It comes down almost entirely to the location where the crime is committed, um, followed by the socioeconomic status of the defendant and the race of the victim. We see it's usually applied for white victims, and usually it's only poor people that end up on death row. And so there's a lot of unfairness around it. Um, on top of the innocence issues, which, you know, we've seen 11 more people officially exonerated already this year from death row. That brings our number to one person exonerated for every eight executions in this country. In Ohio, I think it's one person exonerated for every five executions. So the system's overrun with uh, wrongful convictions, and we've seen, you know, the states are not capable of carrying this out in a fair or just manner and in a manner that doesn't risk innocent human life. It seems like whether anybody supports or doesn't support executions the fact that county prosecutors are elected officials and might garner more votes by being tough on crime, by putting people on death row, there just seems to be something problematic about that. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we see that the people, again, in these 2% of counties that are continuing to pursue these cases, are it is up to the district attorney. They get almost unilateral decision-making power in that. And many of them use this as a sort of um, not in their belt, you know, where they get to come out and say, look at what I did. I had this case. And these cases get a lot of media attention. They tend to get um, a lot of focal points that can elevate the, per- the people involved and, and their names and, and get them in the media more and, and help them then campaign on being so, quote, quote, tough on crime. Now, the average person doesn't have time to sit here and look at crime statistics and recognize that it's a total farce. Death penalty, I would argue, is actually soft on crime because, again, it wastes so much money that's not going to things that would actually work to make us safer. But there's been a perception in this country for many years that um, being punitive is somehow tough on crime. And so that has helped a lot of these guys um, really make a name for themselves, and then they usually are the kind that go on to become attorneys general or governors or senators, and, and they keep kind of climbing that ladder. I don't think that we should be using human lives as a bargaining chip or as a political campaign. What about folks, though, who say, you know, the the victim is never going to have the opportunity to enjoy life again, and even though this person might spend life in prison, they don't deserve life at all. They might even cite biblical reasons for the death penalty. What do you say to folks like that? Yeah, you know, I 
I disagree with them in, in thinking that there is an ethical component to the death penalty. I think, you know, having actually worked around these systems and these people, and as a person of faith, I am someone who believes there's always a pathway to redemption. I think there are many examples, even in the Bible, of people who committed murder who went on to be used powerfully. And I think that what we do when we throw away people who have done something horrible is we eradicate the possibility of redemption. We eradicate the possibility for them to make amends to society. And, and I've, you know, I get to know some of these people and I see the transformation in their lives and I see the possibilities they could have to actually try to prevent the next person from carrying out such a crime. Uh, we, we remove any potential for good when we get rid of, of, of a human life because they've done something wrong. Um, but, you know, aside from that, I don't really need people to necessarily agree with me on everything I just said. I think there's plenty of people who can believe the death penalty is ethical or, or just um, in, in theory, but what we have to have the conversation around is how it operates in practice, and we have to deal in reality, and the reality is, is that this has always been a very failed system. It's always killed innocent people. It's always been socioeconomically and racially biased. We have tried to fix it for decades and decades and decades, and it continues to operate in the exact same manner, and that's because humans run government, and humans are fallible, and there will always be mistakes, and there will always be bias. We can't eradicate that, and so due to these factors, this is why we believe in a limited government in the first place, and my camp, right? We know government is prone to these things. We know that that can't ever be eradicated or fixed, and so government needs to be extremely limited, and certainly we cannot include giving it the power of life and death if we want to see a, a limited government. There's bipartisan legislation at the Ohio State House. Governor Mike DeWine was asked about it the other day at a press conference, and he said, he basically said, you know, with the pandemic going on, it's not a high priority to him right now, but if the legislation makes it to his desk, he'll take a look at it. There seems to be a lot of belief in Ohio that he might sign something that would would come to him that would do away with the death penalty. Yeah, we're certainly hopeful for that. You know, I think Governor DeWine has shown tremendous leadership since taking over two years ago. I've been very impressed with his work. I think he has um, portrayed himself to be someone who's very committed to constitutional principles, someone who really very much believes in individual liberty and a limited government and and pro-life causes. Um, I think he's also somebody who's had the benefit of witnessing the system from various positions and over a number of decades. You know, he was first in the state legislature and then attorney general and now governor. And so he's actually been more intimately involved with this process than many others, and I think he's often probably seen uh, the harmful impact it has on victims, on their family members, on communities. I think he's seen the uh, ineffectiveness of it on as a public policy. I'm sure he cares about the amount of money being wasted on it. Um, so I really appreciate the actions that he's taken thus far in his tenure to ensure that uh, innocent lives are not being taken and to ensure that constitutional protocols are being followed, and, and I have every reason to hope and think that he will continue that, that same leadership. And I I should have mentioned at the beginning of his comment about that, he did say that his feelings about the death penalty have evolved, which is the kind of wording that people use when they've changed their mind. (laughs) That's right. I often often say that too. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who also changed my mind on the death penalty. I used to be very pro-death penalty um, usage. I used to be very, you know, tough on crime sort of mentality, but I was somebody who'd never been around the system. I didn't know what I was talking about. I kind of just had this perception from, you know, what I gathered watching Law & Order SVU and and CSI and shows like that. Uh, When people actually get up close to the justice system and actually start working around it, I find that they change their tune quite quickly. And um, I think he's had the, the history and the experience and the opportunity to see things up close. And then I think it would make a lot of sense for him to have evolved on the issue. Because when you really uh, know the facts, there's very there's 
really no argument I can think of that would justify keeping this on the books. Well, one of the things about the death penalty to me that's always been disturbing is, you know, when there is an execution going on somewhere and you read any newspaper, local or or national, and when there's a story about it, the comment section underneath just has some horrific statements from people about, you know, fry them and, and just do this and that to them and yeah, you know, it, it is very disturbing to read those comments. I always think, wow, you wrote that publicly under your own name. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. You're kind of the person I think I should be afraid of. Um, it, it is very, very odd and weird, and um, and I think it's been socially acceptable for some time. I also think that's changing. It's typically older people I see writing statements like that, um, and I, you know, I just think they look pretty out of touch and also, again, like, pretty creepy i mean if you're if you're running to express your desire to like kill people on facebook i'm a little concerned for you and when when i talk about you know those comments being horrific to me that doesn't even have anything to do with whether i'm for or against the death penalty it's just the idea that that person being executed could just as well been a member of your family as whose family he is a member of that's right there's definitely a lack of humility i think when you see those kinds of comments and 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 as a whole when we talk about matters of the justice community you know people fail to realize there are so many laws in this country it is certain that all of us have committed a felony at some point i think there's close to five thousand felonies on the books um and so there's there's you know the fact that many people do not get caught for those infractions because of the communities they live in, because of the positions they're born into, because of the race of their, you know, background, because of their um, affluence in a community where somebody else might end up in jail for some of these things. And so I think that what we have to start recognizing is that at the base of all this, we have far too many laws. We um, all could end up in, in, in captured by the justice system in one way or another. There's inherent unfairness in it. There's inherent bias in it. And it is, and we should all hope that we have a more fair um, and limited in power and scope of power system so that we really can ensure we are upholding the rights of our citizens, protecting the sanctity of human life, and upholding our values of limited government and individual liberty. Um, and so I think that we all need to approach it from that angle and recognize that it could be us. It could be a family member. It could be somebody that we know and care about. And if you don't think that your own family member or yourself would lose your um, natural rights or your inherent value as a human being because you did something wrong, then you shouldn't have that same posture towards others. Talking with Hannah Cox, she's the senior national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Anything else you'd like to add? No, you know, I just hope people will check out our website and get involved if this is an issue they care about. We're really excited to have a presence in Ohio. We're thrilled to be working there. I've got to say, I personally love getting to come into the state. I think you have the best people, and I've just really enjoyed getting to work around your legislature and your capital. So we'd love to connect with folks. And, again, they can find us at conservativesconcern.org. Okay, Hannah, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. We are two years from the race for Senator Rob Portman's Senate seat, but another person announced they will make a run for it. 
And a group of lawmakers continues to push to take away some of the governor's authority. What he has to say about that effort. And we do start this morning with legislation aimed at limiting Governor DeWine and the health department's authority. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Now, this piece of legislation is one step closer to passage. With 25 yeas and eight nays, the, ba the bill is passed and entitled. The Ohio Senate passed Senate Bill 22 right there along party lines. The legislation calls for a six-person committee that could rescind public health orders, but would need approval to do so from the House and the Senate. Proponents say this creates a system of checks and balances, while critics call it unconstitutional. The truth of the matter is no one branch of government is meant to have unfettered control over our society indefinitely. We believe that the governor and, and the state health director should have the authority to make decisions to protect human lives during the pandemic. The House must pass the bill before it would go then to Governor DeWine's desk. And the governor did respond to the vote. DeWine says he understands the General Assembly's desire to be involved in discussions. However, he says caution is needed here because, in his words, he does not want to leave the people of Ohio defenseless. We don't want to be in a situation where a future governor does not have the tools that she or he needs to protect the people of the state of Ohio. Uh, that would be short-sighted. Uh, it could be uh, tragic. The governor said he would have no choice but to veto this bill if it does make it past the House. Another issue DeWine is dealing with right now, the delay in getting the state's online COVID-19 vaccine portal ready to go. Governor DeWine says while the software is complete, getting providers to enter their information is not. The portal is supposed to reduce problems people are having in scheduling their vaccinations within their zip code. But DeWine says it's weeks away from going live to the public. Among the issues, providers, those who are administering the shots, are slow to input their information into the system. DeWine explained that providers have contracted other companies to create scheduling lists, and abandoning those lists now would cause problems. What they don't want to do is abort that and then end up where other people can jump the line in front of them. And so that's been one of the reasons that they are not ready to jump right, right into, the, into the portal. The state is looking at 100 potential mass vaccination sites. The Schottenstein Center was mentioned as a potential site. An announcement could come in the next few weeks. Some Ohioans are having a hard time scheduling a vaccine appointment. For the most part, to make an appointment, you have to do it online. It's a daunting process for seniors who may not be used to using computers or may not have the technology needed to do this at all. 10TV's Lindsay Mills is taking a closer look at that issue. Frustration, that's the word I heard most when talking to people who are trying to or helping those who are trying to schedule their vaccination appointments. In the case of Jason Grell, he says he's been trying to help both of his parents get an appointment at several different pharmacies. His parents also spend hours each day trying to make an appointment. Sometimes they are able to get through the virtual waiting line only to find out that there are no appointments left. 
Workers from the Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging say they get calls from people who are frustrated more and more lately. People are very frustrated as they've been calling us. We've been getting calls from people who don't have internet service or don't have a device, a computer or a cell phone. We've also been getting calls from people who have um, physical limitations. Tamara James from Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging recommends trying to reach out to as many pharmacies as possible. And with this current phase remaining as long as it's expected to, she says the competitiveness should ease up with time. In Columbus, Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. If you are still struggling to get your unemployment, help is on the way. The state says it's now in a position to try and fix the problems. The director of the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services announced that the state is paying a private group of five people a total of a million dollars to deal with fraud prevention and improved customer service. The governor hired a team from the banking and insurance industry to put into place programs that would catch those who continue to file fraudulent claims. The director of ODJFS says because of the amount of fraud, it can now take up to 20 days just to get someone's claim accepted. Under this private-public partnership, the goal is to find solutions to pre prevent fraud and improve customer service. We have prevented um, at least 100,000 fraudulent claims uh, from being paid, which is a significant amount of millions of dollars. All right, here's what the state is dealing with from October to December of 2020. It received 2,200 fraudulent claims. From December 2020, the state received 56,000 fraudulent claims in that PUA program, and that resulted in $330 million in overpayments. We spent the past year dealing with COVID-19, a devastating health issue, but while we continue to dig ourselves out of this health crisis, Another health crisis has surfaced that has taken a bit of a backseat to the pandemic. Drug overdoses and drug overdose deaths have exploded in central Ohio. As 10TV's Tino Ramos reports, health experts believe part of the reason is COVID-19. It has devastated central Ohio. COVID-19 has taken its toll on every community, and it's also taking lives. But while COVID-19 rapidly spreads across the state, something else is spreading, deaths due to drug overdoses. So we started seeing this issue before the pandemic, and the pandemic just exacerbated what was already starting. Franklin County Coroner Dr. Anahi Ortez is reporting a rapid rise in overdose deaths. In the first six months of the pandemic, 437 people died from overdoses in Franklin County alone. By time 2020 ended, the county saw a 40% jump in deaths compared to the year before. And Dr. Ortez says it's not over. This January 2021, we are still seeing um, an increase. Look at these numbers from the Columbus Fire Division. From February of last year to August, medic runs have nearly doubled for overdoses. Yet the focus remained on the pandemic, making it difficult for anyone trying to get clean. The pandemic has not made things easy. Lindsay Minardo knows that firsthand. She started her recovery from opioids at Mary Haven Drug Addiction Treatment Center right when the pandemic started. Little did she know COVID-19 would present problems. Trying to get sober when you're just bored to death and can't go anywhere, you know, it's just you go crazy. So 
it's definitely not been easy. If you take a look at it as a whole, the numbers of relapses and overdoses have just steadily increased since we've been dealing with COVID-19. Sean Holt says addiction centers like Mary Haven have had to get creative by making virtual counseling available. But in the end, they know COVID-19 will continue to fuel drug addictions. And for those dealing with it on the front line, they're looking for a better way. We need to examine the issue um, a lot um, a lot better. In Columbus, Tino Ramos, 10TV News. There is help for recovery from substance abuse. You want to contact an addiction treatment center by phone or even online. Centers, including Mary Haven, have also adjusted their operations to make sure you are safe in working through the addiction and avoiding COVID-19. The White House announced a sweeping immigration bill. It would shorten the path to citizenship for millions of immigrants. The measure fast-tracks that journey from its current 13 years to eight years and provides a shorter track for undocumented immigrants brought into the U.S. as children. Pure Joy, an undocumented mother in Columbus receiving legal permission to return to her central Ohio home. She's been in sanctuary at a Clintonville church for years. Here's 10TV's Kevin Landers with her reaction to the ruling. Edith Espinal walked into her immigration hearing with the hope her three-and-a-half-year fight to avoid deportation would finally come to an end. In less than an hour, a crowd of supporters got their answer. I finally can go home. Espinal sought sanctuary inside the Columbus Mennonite Church. The 43-year-old Mexican-born mother of three has lived in this back room since October of 2017. Did you ever think that this day was going to come? Before, I don't imagine how it's this day, but in the morning, I feel very happy and very excited. She has lived in the U.S. for more than 20 years, escaping from Mexico with her son, she says, to avoid the violence. I'm really happy to have... Today I can go to my home and thank you everyone for being here for support my family. Espinal was denied a stay of deportation by immigration officials in January. She believes what changed today is a direct result of the presidential election in November. I hope this new president of this new administration do something for all the immigrant community. Ever since her case started, immigration officials have required her to wear an ankle monitor to track her movements. Her attorney, who is also undocumented, says allowing her client to go home doesn't mean she can't be deported. If ICE wants to, they can detain her. Uh, and by the way, I'm also undocumented, so I could be detained as well. But for now, it's time to enjoy family at her home for the first time in more than 40 months. And again, that was 10TV's Kevin Landers reporting. Espinal says she believes ICE allowed her to go home because she has a visa that is pending approval. The decision still requires her to check with ICE every week. Governor Mike DeWine is frustrated, he says, with schools that have not figured out how to get the students back into the classroom. Educators still don't believe getting kids in the classroom is the right move. We'll have a look at their concerns next. At the same time, the governor says he's hopeful students will be able to go to prom this year. 
what's causing his optimistic outlook. We have that next. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Ohio's governor is frustrated with school districts that have not yet come up with strategies to get students back into the classroom. Some teachers say it's just not the right move. 10TV's Gabriela Garcia looks at their concerns and the governor's argument. Our teachers want to work. And, you know, being called out uh, by folks that just don't understand is, is disheartening. John Coniglio is the president of the Columbus Education Association, a union representing thousands of teachers across the city. And our teachers who are working remotely are working their tails off to try to pr- provide instruction remotely. Governor Mike DeWine thanked teachers for how they handled such a difficult year, but he's urging them to get back in the classroom by March 1st. It's not about a commitment to me. It's not about a commitment to the state or the health department. It is really a commitment to the students. Governor DeWine says if schools don't get back to fully in-person or hybrid learning by March 1st, then they're breaking the memorandum of understanding they signed to get their teachers vaccinated. Clearly, he does not understand the problem. Of, of large urban schools. Coniglio says teachers already in hybrid learning want to return to the classroom to teach students in person, but the resources aren't there. Transportation is a huge issue for and we have to transport charter schools and non-public schools before we transport our own. He says social distancing could also be an issue with more kids in the classroom with some rooms just not having the space or upgraded ventilation systems for a safe and healthy learning environment. It's easy to kick the can down to the local level and then stand on a soapbox and say, well, we got to open. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, help us. Bottom line, Coniglio says teachers are on the same page as Governor DeWine. They want to get back in the classroom, but without more resources. How is that going to get solved? How is the governor going to help us solve this problem? They say there are just too many unanswered questions. Reporting in Columbus. How are you? Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. And we are getting a better idea of when some schools in our area will return to in-person learning full-time. Several local districts are making plans to go back into the classroom full-time. Upper Arlington, Westerville, Pickerington, and Delaware have dates planned for March and April. Optimism is something many of us are looking for right now. And optimistic is the word Governor DeWine used to describe his outlook on the spring. He referenced the effectiveness of mask wearing in school settings to eliminate the spread of COVID-19. He says with new information about that effectiveness, we may be able to return to events that we haven't been able to experience in more than a year, including sporting events. So as we look to the spring, uh, we look for proms, we look for graduation, we look to sporting events, we look at all, all kinds of things that we want to do to get back to normal. I think this, the mask is going to be able to allow us to do a lot of these things, uh, and I'm optimistic. And the governor adds that we cannot yet declare victory as vaccination efforts need more time. Big announcements coming out of the Ohio State University. President Christina Johnson says over the next 10 years, Buckeye graduates will leave school 
debt-free. Dr. Johnson says the cost of college is such a burden on students. On average, Ohio State students graduating have $27,000 of debt. The president says there is an achievement gap for four-year students, 11% below the, the school's average. Dr. Johnson says the money students are using to pay that debt could be used for future jobs, homes, or grad school. This is well within our reach, and we will lead the nation as the first university to offer a zero-debt bachelor's degree at scale. And President Johnson also says they're working on ways to make graduate and professional programs more affordable. Today, we continue to celebrate Black History Month. And still to come, we look at the 50th anniversary of the Congressional Black Caucus, from its founding to the present day. And in today's note of promise, the effort to provide more protection to cancer patients against COVID-19. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. A bipartisan group of Ohio lawmakers is trying to get rid of the death penalty. Members of both the House and Senate introduced legislation to repeal the death penalty in Ohio. Right now, 136 people are on death row. But in December, Governor DeWine declared an official moratorium on executions and said lethal injection is no longer an option. Governor DeWine said he will weigh in as a bill moves forward, but did not give an indication on whether he would sign it. Former Ohio Republican Party Chair Jane Timken has officially announced that she will run for Ohio's Senate seat. That Senate seat will be vacated by Senator Rob Portman as he retires in 2022. Timken's announcement comes after she left her GOP chair position just a few weeks ago. In her announcement, she mentions her good relationship with former President Donald Trump and how she hopes to be a voice for Ohio. Ohio's 3rd District Congresswoman Joyce Beatty plans to stay in the House. She tells us she's honored by overwhelming support to run for the U.S. Senate seat, but... She thinks she can have the greatest impact by remaining a congressional representative and chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. There are still no Democrats who have announced a run for that Portman Senate seat. As we continue to celebrate Black History Month, we are looking at the 50th anniversary of the Congressional Black Caucus. It was founded by 12 men and one woman to give African-Americans greater power and influence. Nicole Killian spoke with current and former members about the group's crucial role in shaping major issues. We're here not to discuss transportation but to discuss education. In 1971, with just over a dozen African-American lawmakers serving in Congress, the Congressional Black Caucus was formed to help amplify their voice in an institution that wasn't always welcoming. Even in the House of Representatives, black folks just was not expected, and indeed wasn't wanted. At 90 years old, former New York Representative Charles Rangel is one of the last surviving founders of the group. But you actually came up with the name. Congressional Black Caucus. Just the name. We all had a common mission and a common goal to improve the quality of life for America and especially minority Americans. Wrangell, Shirley Chisholm, Charles Diggs, and the other original members quickly met resistance when former President Nixon refused to meet with them. The courtesy should be extended to us. And when it was abundantly clear that he did not intend to meet, we then said that we would not attend the 
State of the Union message. After boycotting Nixon's address, they finally got the meeting, putting the CBC on the map and opening the halls of power. The caucus as a whole, of course, was gravely concerned with their core nonpartisan principle. No permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interest. Shirley's with me today. California Congresswoman Barbara Lee still has Shirley Chisholm's pearls. She worked on her 1972 presidential campaign and later as chief of staff for Ron Dellums, learning firsthand from two of the caucus's original members. That's how I got involved in politics. It was just quite a remarkable moment for me as a young black woman raising two kids as a single mom to see how the Congressional Black Caucus and its founders really did step out there. Uh, and fight um, for the African-American community. Historically, a Democratic power center, CBC members were the first to draft legislation to make Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday. We will act. The caucus was also at the forefront pushing for sanctions against South Africa's apartheid government. It was the first time a Reagan veto of a major piece of legislation has been overridden. Earning the caucus a reputation as the conscience of the Congress. That was a big moment in the CBC's history. Because it began to influence foreign policy and showed how we could be finally on the right side of history. More recently, the CBC led the effort to pass police reform through the House in honor of George Floyd. The Justice and Policing Act is a bill for human rights. It is an incredible time to be serving in Congress in the midst of a national reckoning on racial injustice. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says the CBC allows newer members like her to learn from mentors like Lee. The power and impact of this representation is not just in that it plants the seeds of aspiration, um, but how it shows up in our policies. You know, we have SNAP today because Shirley Chisholm made it so, because she brought a different perspective as a black woman on the issue of hunger. That's the beauty of the caucus. Ohio Congresswoman Joyce Beatty chairs the CBC as it enters its 50th year. Do you still feel like you are waging some of the same battles from 50 years ago? I think we are certainly waging some of the battles, but I can also tell you not 50 years ago, but 10 years ago, if you would have told me that we would have had a black president of the United States, I would not have thought that we had made that much progress. And our member, Kamala Harris, now vice president. So we have a lot to be proud of. And now we turn to today's note of promise. Cancer experts are calling on the Biden administration to make patients and survivors a priority in getting the COVID-19 vaccine. The Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, the James, is one of more than 100 institutions joining the American Association for Cancer Research in calling for this change. Cancer patients are at very high risk for serious complications if they get COVID infection. And Dr. Raphael Polak, who is the director at the James, says many patients are delaying their appointments and screening to avoid possible exposure. But the reality is uh, there we are seeing delays in diagnosis and in cancer, delays in diagnosis means delays in treatment and ultimately uh, has the potential to seriously negatively impact survival. And Dr. Pola told me the request to the White House is not to move cancer patients ahead, but to include them in the groups that get access. While some cancer patients qualify based on age currently in Ohio, cancer does not bump them to the front of the line. 
We certainly thank you all for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, that's again Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is David Monder, who is the Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. How are you? Great. How are you doing, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about Prevent Blindness Ohio. Absolutely. Uh, Prevent Blindness Ohio was founded in 1957, and our mission is very straightforward and simple, to prevent blindness and preserve sight. Uh, We serve all 88 counties and have offices located in Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Toledo, and Dayton. And our goal is to simply prevent the 50% of vision loss that is needless and help all Ohioans enjoy good sight for life. We are a 501c3 volunteer-driven public health charity. Boy, what a difference uh, from 1957 to today. You think about, uh, obviously, though, blindness is still every bit as debilitating as it was then, but at least it seems that there are a few more tools available to people to help them out. Absolutely. That is that is quite true. And we uh, carry out our mission uh, primarily through um, advocacy, education, and as I'm sure we'll talk about a little more here, uh, early detection, which is the key to uh, reversing vision loss and to preventing vision loss in, in so many ways. And before we get into that, uh, how has your agency been faring during the pandemic? What's been going on? Oh, actually, we've been, uh, all, all systems go, operations is normal. And we, like everyone else, uh, were thrust into truly unique times in mid-March when the pandemic hit. And we, uh, credit to our board, staff, and our uh, huge uh, number of volunteers throughout the state, we quickly pivoted and took um, all of our services, uh, a large number of which involve uh, vision screening trainings that we uh, provide for uh, adult vision screeners and children's vision screeners. We move them from an in-person format to a virtual and live virtual format. So we haven't missed a beat in the provision of our services. And in fact, in many ways, uh, if you look for the silver lining during these times, uh, these new virtual modalities have enabled us to even reach more Ohioans and train even more folks to be vision screeners because we're truly able to reach all corners of our great state. Now, that's excellent. February is Age-Related Macular Degeneration and Low Vision Awareness Month. Uh, tell us what that means. Well, uh, I'll start with Age-Related Macular Degeneration, which is often called AMD. It's a, a leading cause of vision loss in the United States. And um, estimates are that more than 2.2 million Americans, including 
uh, almost 90,000 Ohioans age 50 and over have AMD in 2020, and that number is expected to rapidly increase to 4.4 million Americans by 2050. AMD is basically, uh, it's an eye disease uh, that affects the central vision and may occur in one or both eyes, and it affects the uh, part of the back of the eye that's called the macula, which is the central part of the retina, and when AMD damages the macula, the center part of a person's vision may become blurred or wavy, and a blind spot may develop. Then with Ohio's population aging more and more, it's, it's something we're going to see more of. Absolutely. It's definitely on the rise, and AMD can cause vision loss quickly or slowly and can make it very difficult to do things that require sharp vision, such as cooking, reading, or driving. And it can also make it difficult to see in dim light. Does it start out very subtly? Yes, it can come. It can come very subtly. In fact, when, it, when you think of the symptoms of AMD, um, there's some regular common sense ones: blurred vision, central vision, shadows or dark or empty spot, or distorted wavy effect of straight lines, trouble discerning colors, and difficulty going from bright to low light. But what's a really key part here is, in many cases, um, there there are no symptoms. Uh, at least not until the disease uh, progresses. So what that really highlights, Dave, is how essential it is uh, to have a regular comprehensive eye examination uh, by an eye care professional who can look for the early signs of A and B. And they can check for um, the buildup of of drusen, uh, which basically um, these are um, small yellow deposits which form under the retina, and they can grow in size and stop the flow of nutrients to the retina, which uh, basically uh, result in the retinal cells and the macula that process light end up dying, and that causes that, that vision to become blurred, and it usually is worsened slowly. So uh, the eye care professional can catch the buildup of drusen, um, an increase of retinal blood vessels, or a dramatic, dramatic decrease in visual acuity. And many people re- don't realize that they have AMD uh, until their vision is very blurry. So having r- regular routines, eye examinations with an eye care professional are essential. Talking with David Monder, he's Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. I see that women uh, have it more often than men. Do they know why? More, they usually do have, as you pointed out, uh, will have it more at higher risk. And we uh, do think that, that we'll see that kind of trend continue with the affected population. Uh, it's just a definite characteristic, and we've also seen that the estimated average age of AMD patients is around 80 years old, which is the oldest of any of the uh, more significant eye diseases. And there are more women than men at that age, and that, maybe that's part of it, huh? Absolutely. Is there any way to avoid it? Well, I, the first key step is obviously um, to know, uh, to, again, to get your comprehensive eye, eye exams regularly. Uh, there are, um, you know, certainly certain lifestyle factors that make someone more susceptible uh, to get AMD. Um, obviously, smoking. People who smoke are, on average, you know, two to three times more likely to get AMD because smoking has a toxic effect on the retina. Um, obesity can impact progression uh, and the development of AMD and other cardiovascular issues such as hypertension and high cholesterol, and sunlight exposure uh, of five hours or more per day 
uh, for instance, in teens, um, lead to more development of drusen earlier and makes them more susceptible. So those are certain lifestyle uh, changes and, and healthy habits one can practice to help reduce uh, the possibility. And what about uh, low vision? Uh, what does that encompass? In Ohio, we have roughly uh, 180,000 individuals with visual impairment or blindness, and low vision is vision loss that cannot be corrected with glasses, contacts, or surgery. Uh, it can include blind spots, poor night vision, and blurry sight. Uh, the most important thing is uh, we do have low vision aids that can help uh, individuals stay independent. There's also special training, um, which is commonly referred to as vision rehabilitation. Uh, it can provide skills for living with low vision, and a low vision specialist can help determine the right combination of aids for every individual's needs. And when I say low vision aids, that can include things such as magnifying glasses, screens and stands, um, large print newspapers, magazines and books, um, um, telescopic lenses, and as well as computer and tablets. There are a lot of low vision aid resources that are available out there and that we hope individuals will utilize. They can find a lot of them on Prevent Blindness's uh, website, which is www.tbohio.org. I remember decades ago when more things became uh, available with large print or even, you know, phones with bigger buttons, things like that. You know, when you think back about how difficult it must have been before some of that stuff came out, uh, how far we've come. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. There's so much available, and the challenge in many cases is connecting the individual that needs these resources with them and having them communicate. And often I think one of the major impediments sometimes is, again, even those that have a low vision, um, there can sometimes be just a sense of there's nothing that can be done about it because, you know, they've been told that, oh, there, there's, there isn't a pair of glasses that can fix this. There's no surgery, no, no way that we can, you know, re completely reverse this. But there are so many different resources that are available that is, if one can, you know, keep, you know hopeful, investigate, and and advocate against the low vision specialist. Uh, find their support groups out there. There are tons of different resources that are available, including uh, Prevent Blindness has a no cost living well with low vision online resource uh, that provides uh, just a plethora of useful tools, including a self help guide uh, to non visual skills, uh, workbook, a guide to caring for the visually impaired. We really encourage folks to visit our website or they can call us at 800-301-2020, and we can help connect them with these resources. As you said, Dave, they're available. We've made some amazing strides in the last several years. We just have to connect people with the resources that are available for them. You mentioned uh, about help that's available through your agency. Do you have regional offices around the state or just one central location or what? We have our central office in Columbus, but we also have chapter offices um, that are uh, staffed with regional directors, and they also have you know know exactly where to point individuals uh, to different types of resources. Um, the most the most valuable is the Prevent Blindness website, and in addition to our website, if individuals go to lowvision.preventblindness.org. They can find tons of resources on technology products, doctor searches, uh, 
self-help resources and financial assistance that's available. So we always, I mean, so much of what we do in addition to the, the trainings uh, that we provide is just the education, the access to the materials and the knowledge that are available. We have a, a large number of different fact sheets on eye diseases, in, including um, AMD and glaucoma and cataracts that are available on our website in multiple languages that folks can download. We really do hope that, that the, and people will access these resources and we can be uh, their one-stop shop for eye health and safety. I see that you have a vision care outreach program that can help uh, low-income folks get eyeglasses. Absolutely. We have, we're, we're very blessed to have a, uh, a significant number of partner agencies throughout the state, ranging from schools to uh, social services organizations, uh, all of whom uh, they refer their clients to who they see to our program, and we can provide uh, their financially qualifying. You mentioned uh, 200% of the poverty level. Uh, we can provide um, free comprehensive eye examinations and free eyeglasses to individuals. So this is, you know, us really trying to make sure that we can hit the, all the, the, the underserved and the underinsured throughout our state and give them what basically, if you think about it, I mean, how do you perform daily tasks if you can't see? So having an eye exam to catch, uh, measure and detect eye diseases and to ensure that your vision is healthy and then having the resources to get you know, eyeglasses and other important resources, it's just an absolute necessity. So we're very happy to be able to provide assistance through that BCO program. Talking with David Monder, Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. Are there any issues on the state or federal level, any type of legislation that you're pushing or, or wanting to see happen? Oh, well, we actually, this past week, uh, with our um, partners, uh, national partners at Prevent Blindness America, uh, we had our week our annual Eyes on the Capitol event, which, like everything else this past year, was a whole new experience because it was done virtually. So we met with um, many of our uh, representatives and senators from Ohio to push for important issues such as maintaining uh, funding uh, for glaucoma as well as uh, increasing funding through the Centers for Disease Control uh, to get very essential uh, surveillance data on the prevalence of different eye diseases and, and eye conditions and where throughout the state where we see disparities and access to resources. So we've been uh, very much uh, pushing and working to increase funding in those areas. Another area we focus on a lot at the state level is um, on eye health safety in particular, uh, making sure that individuals are as safe as possible from fireworks. Um, there's still a, a ban in Ohio on consumer discharge of fireworks. We fully support that and maintaining that ban. Uh, fireworks injuries are a leading cause of eye injuries, and uh, we continue to advocate for prohibiting consumer discharge of fireworks and leaving it to uh, the professionals. So that is, those issues are what dominate the majority of our advocacy. In the age of the pandemic, so many people have been working from home uh, in areas that wasn't even thought of maybe, a, a, you know, a year ago. Is that opening the door for the possibility of more blind folks to work from home? Oh, definitely. And there are definitely resources to help accommodate them in, in, in doing so. Again, so much when it comes to blindness or when it comes to low vision, um, we want to do everything we can to uh, make it as easy as possible for living well with low vision and to assist folks 
and maintaining their independence and quality of life. Definitely. Talking again with David Monder, Director of Community Services for Prevent Blindness Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, I, again, I would just in, encourage everyone, and I think it holds true to not only um, AMD, with February being AMD uh, Awareness and Low Vision Awareness Month, but also just that the best way to save uh, your vision from AMD and other forms of eye diseases is to get an eye exam from an eye care professional. Early detection is the key. Like early detection and adhering to treatment can actually save your sight for years to come. So uh, we always preach to prevent blindness. You get one pair and no spare. And a lot of us can take our um, eye health and vision health for granted. Uh, you don't want to do that, especially when there's so many eye diseases that can start so subtly and come on so gradually, you hardly even notice it. And then before you know it, you have some permanent damage, permanent vision loss that might have been avoided or repaired if we just had caught it early enough. So we're all about prevention and early detection. And we want to help your advocate and connect you with whatever resources uh, can lead to greater and stronger eye health. And David, what's the Prevent Blindness Ohio website again? Yes, it is www. P is in Paul, B is in boy, O H I O dot O R G. Or they can con- anyone with questions can contact our office at eight hundred three zero one twenty twenty. I'd love to help. We'd love to help you out any way we can. Outstanding, David Monder again, uh, Director of Community Services, Prevent Blindness Ohio. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that you've given the opportunity for us to share some resources. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.